I'm Mary Ambrose, and this is the CG Podcast. The cost of repairing the damage done by recent hurricanes is massive, in part because flooding is the most expensive risk worldwide. And insurance companies are shaking their heads. Not because people often don't get flood insurance, rather because insurance people have been warning us about the cost of climate change for decades. There are no climate change deniers in the insurance business. We just haven't listened. We've been doing the equivalent of going to our neighbor for dental work rather than a dentist. We seem to put more faith in our hairdressers than we do in people who say, don't build there. It'll end in floods and tears. Jason Thistlethwaite says it's not as simple as us ignoring the facts. He's a CG fellow and assistant professor at the University of Waterloo. His research is on the leading edge of the insurance industry's attempt to cope with climate risk. Today, we're going to listen. Hi, Jason. Hi there. Insurance companies, not really a very lovable lot. They turn down or dispute people's claims. But you say they're not the villains in this drama, that they're shouldering the blame of reckless developers and equally reckless governments. Explain. Well, insurers are not entirely off the hook in the story, but the main reason why we're seeing this increase in extreme weather risk is that climate change is causing more extreme weather, our infrastructure is outdated and is not built to handle these extremes, and we've allowed development in really high-risk areas. And more broadly, as citizens, we underestimate the risk of extreme weather for our communities and families and end up taking very little action to protect ourselves from this risk. I know that you've looked at that in Canada, and is that true around the world that people, A, don't think it's that big a risk, and B, say, okay, well, I'll put a dollar towards fixing it, so they really underestimate the cost? Most research in international jurisdictions confirms that a large segment of the population does indeed discount and and isn't really aware of the real risk they face as a community family or, or homeowner. Don't insurers, though, have a responsibility to tell people that they'll never get insurance if you build there or you should pay more for it? Not legally. Insurers are in a competitive market, and they're going to look for an advantage where they can expand their coverage wherever possible. In addition, insurers struggle to incorporate things like climate change into their risk assessments, so they tend to be quite short-sighted. Uh, And this limits their ability to understand how risk is going to change and and maybe areas where people shouldn't be building that could be unlivable in the future. How can they not put it? I mean, they're the ones that have been on the head of the curve on this. How could they not be able to put it into their forecasts? Insurers rely on history to try and predict the future. It's asking quite a lot of them to begin predicting uh, what their future is going to look like. So they're looking for historical trends and risks and then are trying to figure out what's likely to happen next year, asking them to take an additional step to ask to what's going to happen in the next 10, 30, next century is quite complex and, and certainly difficult. And do you think it's also because people can't see flooding unless they've actually lived through it? Experience is the biggest variable that explains people taking actions to protect their property from flooding. But the other problem is that people quickly forget. And when they are told, for example, that this is the 1 in 100 year flood, they then assume that another flood is not going to happen for the next 99 years. When in fact, it's likely to be about a 5% chance every 25 years that you're likely to see a flood. 
So this is the equivalent of someone standing by the slot machine saying, well, I've been here for half an hour and kept losing money. But that means by definition, those three cherries will come up when in fact the odds have not changed no matter how long you stand there. And we do it every day. (laughs) That we do. (laughs) So, but what I am struck by is it's not the people with the big Floridian beach houses that are wiped out by the global warming of and rising of the sea levels. It's Filipino fishing people whose lives are literally ruined. And yet we all think, well, that must be pretty cheap to replace. I mean, we, you know, it isn't a great big beach house. Couldn't we come up with sort of smaller houses against the ocean where people could still have their fishing livelihoods? Is that not the case? These people have some, don't have some things that, that we are fortunate to have in, in the developed world, and that is the availability of insurance, governments with resources to help redesign and, and rebuild buildings. Uh, without those resources, these people end up being displaced, they end up losing their jobs, and it's that long-term impact on the productivity and growth of the economy that becomes the cost that, uh, that really matters. Uh, it's the long-term impacts on health, jobs, um, and, and this productivity that you lose out of the economy that is much more, much, has much more of an impact in an economy that already is unstable as opposed to some th- an event in the developed world where you have these financial backstops, uh, be it insurance, uh, the federal government, and personal wealth. Well, and even in Caribbean countries, even if you get the hotel back up, you've lost all that tourism and people are loath to rush back. Absolutely. These economies, particularly those particular economies that have a large tourism market, tourism, like insurance, is one of the most vulnerable sectors in the economy to climate change. I can see why. So then shouldn't governments, I mean, these are mom and dad, (laughs) governments are now (laughs) supposed to look after us all the time. Shouldn't they say to people, you just can't build there. You just can't. I mean, it's just going to cost us all an arm and a leg. Forget it. We're going to make it a public beach and people look after themselves. Why don't they do that? This is exactly what we should be doing. The big reason we don't do it is there's no incentive for them to do it, particularly at the local level. Local governments gain most of their revenue based on property taxes. And permits. Right. And so it's prohibitive for them to say, this very lovely area by the water here is now a high-risk area and you're not going to be able to live there. In addition, the more problematic issue is the legacy of poor development, so where people have already developed in these high-risk areas. And there's really a, a... a big fear, and, and there's no evidence to actually support this, that if you go in and tell or designate an area as high risk, that then property those areas will suffer depreciation in value. And we actually have very little evidence that that's the case when, in fact, a real flood, if it were to happen, has a long-term and permanent impact on those property values. So even if you said to someone, this is really dangerous to uh, live here, they would do so. They wouldn't listen to you. They'd say, well, I don't care. I'm just going to take the chance. Well, you can use the information as best you can, but Ultimately, governments have to restrict that. They have to come in and say, no, 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 this, this, we are going to convert this land into something that's less risky, that is able to actually manage flooding more effectively. Uh, unfortunately, and an example of this would be, for instance, in areas that are already developed, is a government comes in and says, we are going to buy out your property, and you have no choice but to leave. Um, this is a mandatory buyout. And in the climate change community, these ideas surround this broader idea of a managed retreat. You're trying to find out a policy that over the long term helps protect people and and property um, that saves the economy as a whole. Unfortunately, despite being the most expedient and cost-effective idea, it is by far the least politically popular. I can certainly see that. But there is an argument that taxpayers, and you've made it, that taxpayers are picking up the bill because these people are 
you know, saying, well, we can just sell all of these developers, municipal governments, they're all fine with it. So if taxpayers are picking, picking up the bill, isn't, doesn't that show some sort of governmental responsibility around that? Right. Taxpayers are unaware of these costs and how much, their bur- uh, how much of a burden it's placing on them. And in fact, that's the way it works in most countries. If there's a natural disaster, uh, the, cost, the, the consequences of poor planning and this poor foresight, not using climate change to better understand where we live and how we should live, uh, is, is hurting the taxpayer. This is why we need to start bringing this message to people and letting them know that this risk exists and trying to coordinate a constituency, some support to try and change the way we do these things. Well, how do you create support for don't live here, it's a gorgeous place, but it's a flood risk? What I mean, are there places in the world that are doing this? And how do they get, I mean, I would think the insurers should be taking out billboards. You want to keep your rates down? Don't live in these places. Right. Well, the, f- the first tool in your in your toolkit is going to be information. You need to make information about risk as public and as uh, easy to understand as possible. Uh, right now, it's very difficult to find access to, let's say, a flood risk map to let you know whether you are in a high-risk area or not in a flood risk area. Wow. <laughs> that just seems like you should, they should have to make that very obvious. But okay, so you can't get a map. So what's the second step? The second step uh, at that point is to start incentivizing people to to realize that that risk is there. Um, so some jurisdictions, for instance, are considering risk-based taxation. If you live in an area that the government considers to be at higher risk and you're contributing more to the damage that the community faces, you should be paying higher property taxes. Liking that. And are there any local, you've talked about the, really the thing that will change this is local initiative, grassroots level change. And how do you get that kind of thing for something? I mean, I certainly know in the UK where they flood, 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 the same places. You see them every year, flooding, flooding, flooding. Um, and they seem to be building some kind of response. Can you tell me a little about that? Right. So you have to translate this climate change, this risk, which people tend not to think about as a part of their everyday, into something that they can understand in terms of their backyard. Uh, We're learning more about how to go about doing that. So in the UK, for instance, it's very easy to stick your postal code into um, a government website, and they'll give you a measure on your risk. It'll also let you know that you should be buying insurance and that you need to, these are your responsibilities as a homeowner given that you live uh, in this type of area. Other countries do it. It's completely doable. It's not that expensive. And one of the other things that's going on is an effort to localize this flood risk through people who have been in the community for a long for a long period of time and can remember the last flood. Uh, this is often the case. You have people that move into a community, new growth. It's a good thing. But these people are completely unaware that where they were building their home uh, was in fact flooded you know, no later than 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, these people are armed with information on how you can access the maps, uh, what you need in terms of insurance, uh, what flood warnings mean for you. Uh, and it really, again, translating this as if you can understand it happening in your own backyard. So you're kind of crowdsourcing some neighborhood watch and crowdsource sort of thing works together. Absolutely. It's, it's a local mobilization. It's going from the bottom up. Has there ever been an effort outside of the bottom at the top to address this? The UN is very concerned about damage, particularly in these developing countries who are most vulnerable. So uh, the current mechanism to deal with what they call loss and damage by the United Nations is the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. This was established in 2013 um, at the Conference of the Parties. Uh, 
Uh, and it has some very high-level goals, things like improve access to information, strengthen coordination between uh, the relevant sectors and stakeholders, and build capacity in terms of finance and technology. What does that mean? Well, the most controversial aspect of this issue around loss and damage is liability. What the developing countries have been wanting for a long time is a pool, perhaps an insurance pool, or a fund that they could go to to access in the event of a significant climate change risk uh, manifesting or, or damage occurring. The issue with that is that that would then confer blame on the developed countries who want to avoid at all costs any type of language around being financially liable for what could be damaged for the next you know, hundreds of years. Wow. So it isn't like a group insurance plan where we all put in $20 and then if you get sick, then the rest of us carry the cost. Because that doesn't have liability. If you get sick, it's not your fault. Right. So no, it's not. This, is, this would be one group of countries supporting actions that they've taken to increase risk, namely the emissions of greenhouse gas emissions, which are causing the problem in the first place. These developing countries, though, are recognizing that increasingly they are going to have to go it on their own. So they are exploring with the insurance sector some innovative uh, financial mechanisms that they can use in the event of a, a natural disaster. There's a, there's a Caribbean uh, insurance initiative where Caribbean countries, the governments, on behalf of their taxpayers, actually buy an insurance package. So the smart thing about this is that you have multiple sources of capital from in each of these individual companies going into a big pool. So the risk is spread. Uh, it's not going to be one country that's left alone shouldering the burden. It'll be diversified amongst all of the contributors and these participants. And, and this is increasingly a model that I think the developing world uh, is recognizing is an utmost necessity if they're going to be protecting uh, their people and their economies. And like health insurance, if you do more to protect your people against flood risk, then presumably you get to put in less money or you get to claim more money. Absolutely right. So they're going to be going to the international reinsurance sector, uh, which is a largely capitalized, interesting and exotic financial world. And they will uh, adjust risk based on their models and their assessments of what your country is doing. If you build a big dike around your island uh, and then build, um, in addition to it, plants, vegetation, natural um, strategies to absorb flood risk, their models will show that the risk is going down and so, you get a cheaper rate. So does this great big insurance group going to work with the UN? Is that what you see as the way forward on this? They're involved with the UN through a number of different initiatives. The reinsurers were the first actor in the insurance industry to raise this issue around global climate change. And why? Well, because they're concerned it won't be affordable or available in the future if we don't take these actions. Jason, you would think this issue would be uh, pretty central to the UN conference on climate change. Unfortunately, this discussion around loss and damage doesn't get the headlines. It's mitigation. It's the commitments that countries are making towards their greenhouse gas uh, reductions that, that ends up taking up um, you know, most of the air on this. Uh, and that's unfortunate. The UN has recognized that adaptation it should be prioritized at the same level as mitigation. Uh, it unfortunately falls off the radar. Well, when you say it falls off the radar, does that mean the media is not looking for it or actually nothing's being discussed? No, there are discussions. Uh, there is this Warsaw mechanism on loss and damage, and there are negotiators discussing how to manage these risks and these costs. And the insurance industry is there participating as well. It, it just tends to get crowded out. Uh, the ministers are going to show up. They're the ones that will, will get the attention. They're the ones that are signing on to these commitments. Mitigation is a cost now to protect the future. It's very difficult to communicate how you put money into something like adaptation to generate benefits long over the horizon. 
So is this going to be money Trump's politicians? <laughs> uh, that's been the theory from from the get-go, that the insurance industry would be this lever that you could play up against the fossil fuel sector at the global stage. They're getting there, but insurers are still quite short-term in their thinking. Uh, A few more of these significant uh, events, though, and they'll be forced to because ultimately they're accountable to their shareholders. And once the shareholders see that the writing is in the sand, you'll start to see... The tide's coming in. We could go all day with this, Yes, yes. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Jason Thistlethwaite is a CG fellow, as well as an assistant professor in the School of Environment, Enterprise, and Development in the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo. The paper, which he co-authored with Daniel Henstra, Flood Risk and Shared Responsibility in Canada, you can find it on the CG site, and you can also find our other podcasts there, cgonline.org. CG is the Centre for International Governance, Innovation, an independent, nonpartisan think tank with an objective and uniquely global perspective. I'm Mary Ambrose. <laughs>